This is CliffCentral.com. You're listening to The Bounce Show with Byron Karpinski. I'm Hugh Bladen, and it's on CliveCentral.com. Um, it's Cliff Central, Blades, and it's Ben Karpinski. Why didn't you tell me? Ben Karpinski on CliveCentral.com. Welcome to it. It is The Bounce Show. After a little break last week, I was away. I had a nice little family holiday. Went down to the Trans Sky. I flew down to East London, and I played that amazing golf course. As you know, I've been trying to play SA's top 100 golf courses, so I'm 80 down now. I've got 20 to go, and uh, you can actually see my full review. Well, not really a review, but like I played that course last Monday, so I made a little YouTube video around it. It's really cool. We're about to, uh, obviously, we're gearing up for the Open Championship now at Birkdale, so it was really cool to play a Lynx golf course. Not a traditional Lynx as they have it in the classics, but it was running pretty hard and fast, and the views of the sea, uh, the dunes, the it's just amazing. If you are ever in the area, and I know a lot of us aren't kind of ever going to go close to East London in our lives, it is such a great golf course. It's not the greatest town, of course. Um, a lot of smaller places in SA are kind of falling a bit by the wayside, you know, if I'm going to be completely frank. But that golf course, it really is worth the trip. It's about... 20 minutes from the airport, you can get a, ca- get a taxi there, and uh, that whole Eastern Cape is just so, so beautiful. Now, I, I love traveling, I absolutely love it, and to discover new places like this, wow, just so, so cool. So, if you do subscribe to me on YouTube, I'm going to start with a plug straight away here. Uh, the Bounce on YouTube, you'll find my video there about the East London Golf Course, my time there, and then this week I'm going to try and find some more time, or this weekend I'll find some more time. Because I took my drone out to the Trans Sky, uh, the hole in the wall, um, that Coffee Bay area, and I filmed like nonstop for about a week. I've got such amazing footage. There's like pods of dolphins. There's all kinds of stray animals. The hole in the wall is probably the most beautiful spot I've been to in all of South Africa. So I'm going to be producing a whole bunch of uh, visual content as I keep threatening to do. So there'll be some really cool videos on the YouTube channel. So, uh, quite a big week last week, and I'm sorry I didn't have anything fresh to listen to. We replayed the People vs. Behardin court case, which seems to be getting quite a lot of, um, well, quite a lot of traction still. People are asking me now to do the People vs. JP Dumini court case, but I think that's, well, it's a bit of a non-event. And of course, JP was dropped for the second test for the England vs. SA series, and, uh, well, look at the results there. Quinton de Kock slotted in at number four. And he was amazing. He really was. He only got, he didn't kick on. Obviously people will say he should have kicked on after a good start. But the momentum switch of having a guy as sort of as positive and decisive as uh, Quinton Cock at number four really, really made a huge difference. Anyway, we'll get into the cricket a little bit later in the show. Basically, I'm just going to catch up on a whole bunch of stuff because, you know, I didn't watch a lot of TV last week. As it is, I'm kind of going through this myself. So sit back. Wherever you are listening to your podcast, or if you're running, listening to the podcast, it's always a good idea. Keeps your mind off how tired you're getting. So if you're running, shout out to that. Or if you're at gym, that's always good. So we got uh, rugby, lots of rugby. Super rugby, of course, came to its finale as far as group stages over the weekend. So all the sort of lesser teams are falling away, and the good teams now march on. Or in the case of the Brumbies, the Sanzar conference system helps you march on. Of course, like I said, this cricket, the Women's World Cup, that's coming to its uh, sort of exciting crescendo this weekend. And there's loads of golf. And then Roger Federer, well, he's just, yeah, amazing. What this guy is doing, absolutely, absolutely incredible. 
that's about it for the intro. I don't like to waffle through intros, but I've got a packed show for you this week. So thanks for joining. And um, we'll get into, well, let's open up with the rugby, shall we, after this. And there goes the final whistle. Perinara will belt it away into touch. And the Crusaders have lost their unbeaten record in the last match of the regular season. And the defending champions have come through by 31 points to 22. They did manage the bonus point, though. They were pretty good. In places, they were also a little bit shaky. Of course, Warren Whiteley not playing is becoming a bit of a factor. People are saying that, you know, maybe he is what has made this Lions team so great. And he definitely showed for the Springboks what an amazing sort of glue he is. He might not be the best player in his position. We've had this debate. We've had this discussion time and time again. But he definitely does add so much. And Johan Ackerman, after the match where the Sharks, well, sorry, where the Lions did beat the Sharks 27-10, going top of the overall log. Johan Ackerman, the coach, the the departing coaches say the team just lacks sort of intensity. Maybe it's because it's the final game before the playoffs. Maybe because they felt they didn't have to give too much. Whatever the case, this Lions team has now got the best chance of any South African team since the era of the all-conquering Bulls to win this thing. But let's not jump ahead. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. Let's go through just the results of the final round of regulation play. So, wow, it was... Uh, <laughs> there's some absolute... Re- Okay, start off, with, start off with the Highlanders. They beat the Reds 40.17. No surprise there whatsoever. The Rebels ran the Jaguars so close, and they really should have won this match. Jaguars coming uh, coming victors at the end there, 32-29. Then Kings versus the Cheetahs. The Kings had this. They really did. And uh, as a team that was kind of stro- showing strength, to st- going from strength to strength throughout the tournament, you kind of felt this was a game they could definitely win. And uh, the Cheetahs, well, the funny thing is this was being, people were saying this is the first Pro 14 SA Derby match because both these teams are leaving Super Rugby. That is being confirmed now, so they're on their way. But the Kings losing that one at home, 20 points to 21, Cheetahs snatching it late, and then maybe the upset of the entire tournament. I think it was 21-7 at half time. the Blues led the Sunwolves. The Sunwolves winning this one in Japan, 48-21. 48-21. This is the same Sunwolves team that lost 94-7 to the Lions not so long ago. Of course, it's slightly stronger because they're playing at home. A couple of key players were back. But I don't understand why the Sunwolves don't just play every game out in Japan. They seem to have a really great crowd there. They seem to get some some sort of extra sort of power. Because on the road or in Singapore, they're absolutely crap. But they managed to beat the Bulls at home in Japan. And now they've beaten the Blues at home in Japan. So maybe that's something they should consider next year. The Chiefs, they were always going to be too strong for a Brumbies team. They were resting some key players. So 28-10 was the final score there. Hurricanes, well, as we said, they beat the Crusaders 31-22. Looked pretty comfortable in the end there. And the Hurricanes, well... When you get to this stage of the tournament, these guys are just as, as good a favourites as anybody else. The Force absolutely hammered the Waratahs, 40 points to 11. Not so long ago, the Waratahs were not only Australia's best team, but they were Super Rugby champions. They have just gone backwards, they really have. Since Michael Checker left and became the Aussie coach, these guys have gone backwards at an alarming rate. And we'll get into just how on alarming rates uh, they've gone backwards in a sec. Then the other matches to look out, just to recap on there, the Bulls took on the Stormers at Loftus. Uh, Loftus as the Fortress is obviously no longer. Teams go there and are expected to win. The Bulls did play a little bit better. Uh, the Stormers, though, 41-33 victors. The only problem is, though, with the Stormers, of course, they now go into the playoff stage. 
But in the last 10 matches, I think they've averaged around 30 points. They've conceded. Now, the Stormers always were a team that had such a rock-solid defense. But going to the stage that matters the most, it does not look like it's kind of happening anymore. And then just that last result again, confirmation. The Lions beating the Sharks 27-10 away from home. So we all know this log is very strange, right? And we don't have to keep harping on about it. But just to put it in perspective, let's actually look at how the overall log finished for this whole thing, right? So we'll get into the, the playoffs in a second. So the Lions win this one. 15 points, sorry, 15 matches. They won 14, 65 points. Crusaders second. They've also won 15, so also played 15, won 14, 63. Then, if you were to look at third place, third place is the Stormers. Now, the Stormers have only got 43 points. They've got 10 wins from their 15 matches. That's good enough for third because they finished top of African conference that they're in. The Brumbies played 15, won 6. <laughs> Throughout the tournament, this was a running joke, right? It really was. Six wins gets you fourth place in the log, and it gets you a home quarterfinal. 34 points for the Brumbies. Then, in fifth place, the Hurricanes, with the third highest points haul, they finished fifth. So that's 12 wins from 15 matches, 58 points. The Chiefs, with the fourth highest points haul, they finished sixth, uh, with 12 wins out of 15. Same as the Hurricanes, just one point behind, 57 points. Then the Highlanders, 51 points, which would have been good enough for fifth, that makes, makes them 7th position, 11 wins from 15 matches. And then the Sharks, they sneak into that final position, the 8th position. So they're on 42 points, which would make them 7th uh, best. So they would have pipped the Brumbies. Anyway, not important. To look past that, there's some teams that had some real shockers. The Blues, they were always going to be the worst New Zealand team, okay? So you don't actually feel... Ugh, so what? They finished ninth. No biggie. The Jaguars, well, we kind of thought second season in, these guys might kick on now. They might do something. They built up a decent head of steam at home, but then they just sort of lost the plot. I remember them losing to the force at home, and that, to me, was a big surprise. They finished quite nicely in Australia with two wins there, but against the Australian opposition, well, who cares? Then the Kings, they were finished They finished 11th on the log, right? Now, this is the team that is deemed not good enough for the tournament. They won six out of 15 matches, 28 points the final tally there for them. They won as many matches as the Brumbies. Let's just think about that. The Kings won as many matches as the Brumbies. Brumbies finished fourth. They get a home quarterfinal. The Kings finish 11th, and they now have to go play in Europe. 12th position was the Force. They're a lower kind of order team. No big surprises there. They won six out of their 15 matches. Then the Cheetahs, well, they were kind of disappointing. They won four out of their 15 matches, 21 points in total. They were exciting at times, but just age-old Cheetahs problems. The defense was leaky, and they just sort of, they took some big numbers, especially on the road. Then the Reds, well, they just keep getting worse as well. Only four wins out of their 15 matches, same points haul as the Cheetahs. The Bulls, well, this is definitely a season to forget. And we know this is a building side, right? We know they've also had some injury problems, but this is a team that just, they're, they're they desperately, desperately, desperately need a guy like John Mitchell coming in. So obviously their fortunes are going to change. There's no ways they can be any worse than what they they were this season. Then the Waratahs was a four wins from 15 matches. As I said, this team used to be the, the Super Rugby champions. Not so long ago they beat the Crusaders. Uh, and they are now, well, they're languishing is probably the only word you can use because the only teams worse than the Waratahs and their 19 points was firstly the Sunwolves. They finished 17th overall. Just two wins from their 15 matches. They got 12 points. But the worst team, the worst of the worst, is the Rebels. Now, the Rebels, they've got one win out of the 15 matches. Just the one. Nine points in total. So, we know the Cheetahs, and we know that, and the Kings are out of here. 
but Australia are still deliberating. They're still kind of going through this process of who are they going to cut. Now, if they cut the force, they're cutting their second-best team, essentially. There's no two ways of, of describing that. That is the second-best team in Australia behind the Brumbies, right? The second-best team. If you look at the wins, they also won they had six wins uh, this, this season in the tournament, just the same as the Brumbies. Those guys are in for an absolute shit show with court cases, protracted court cases, all kinds of just you don't things you don't want as a professional sport administrator or a professional sports team. Because just like the Kings, they've got every reason to be in this tournament, but it looks like they're on their way out. So that's Super Rugby, I guess. Uh, that, that log, it's I tweeted it out, and people did definitely seem to enjoy having a good laugh at it. But that was the overall ladder for regulation play. We now move in to the quarterfinals of the tournament. So this weekend, so Friday night, uh, sorry, Friday morning, South African time, Friday night, Australian time. Brumbies versus Hurricanes, 11:35. If the Brumbies win this one. Well, there'll be a fair amount of humble pie be eaten all around because everyone believes that Brumbies don't deserve to be in here as again. Six wins from 15 matches. They now take on the Hurricanes who had double the amount of wins. 12 wins from 15 matches. Hurricanes have to travel to play this match and I reckon they're going to eat the Brumbies up. No question about that. Then Saturday, Crusaders versus the Highlanders. Now this seems also a little unfair, don't you think? The Crusaders lost all of one match this whole season. They've been absolutely incredible. They finished second in the log. And in the quarterfinal, they've got to play the Highlanders. You know how good the Highlanders are? On their day, with the star quality they've got, that is just rough. You can be knocked out after playing. You can play a blinder and still lose to this team. 9.35 Saturday. Kind of hoping the Crusaders will go through because they deserve to do it off the season they've had. But Highlanders, tough opposition. Then, on Saturday in South Africa, 2.30 at Emirates Airlines Park, which is, of course, in Johannesburg. It'll be the Lions versus the Sharks. 2.30, it'll be a, a repeat of, of last week's match. And also, you know, these guys, they knew that if they finish top, they'll get an easier match. And, well, the Sharks right now, there is definitely an easier match. The Lions weren't even at their best on Saturday, and they sort of easily got away from the Sharks. Look for the Lions to do get their bench out here as well. Win at a canter. And then the Stormers versus the Chiefs. Now, this match last year, same thing. Stormers didn't have a great season. They managed to get a high on the log because of the whole conference system. They then hosted the Chiefs. The Chiefs arrived, and they scored 60 points versus a Stormers team. They just did not seem to know what was going on. That, of course, was the year where they didn't play a single New Zealand team. And, well, it was quite a rude awakening. This year, a bit of a change. The Stormers, I still don't believe they're going to win this match. I just don't have a feeling they've got what it takes to beat the Chiefs right now. But... In this match, in regulation play early in the season, the Stormers are just at. They did beat the Chiefs, so that'll be 5 o'clock Saturday, South African time. And that's pretty much it for the rugby. We must now move on to the crickets, and what a test match that was. If you're an English fan, probably a good time to stop listening for a few minutes. Here we go. That is the end of the game. Two and two. See it. And... South Africans celebrate. They deserve it. They've outplayed England in all departments. Two in two. Rolly Fear. Little nick from Jimmy Anderson. Pictures got quicker. Great joy for South Africa. Heavy loss in that first test match at Lords and then coming back so strongly. Influence of Duplessis as captain back in the team. I'd also say Chris Morris has been better in this potent attack. It's one each, two to go. We start again a week on Thursday down at the Oval. Lots for England to think about before then. There are many great things to celebrate in sport. Beating England in pretty much anything is right up there. 
Test match cricket? Maybe even the top. Well, after the protests got absolutely hammered at Lords, they really did bounce back. And, well, we kind of called it, didn't we? We all thought that with Fafti Basie coming back, this team was going to be so much stronger. And there's no way that Joe Root was going to be able to hold this team together for this long. Now, I'm not saying it's all Joe Root. But if he doesn't score 190 runs, where is it all coming from for the rest of this team? I mean, to be completely honest... This is a team that now, after this big crushing loss, 340 runs, right? Now, that is an absolute mountain of a result, which you don't want against you. You take that into consideration. Where is this team going to patch it up? Now, I've been a big fan of how England have turned things around cricket-wise. Remember the last World Cup? They were just the laughing stock of that tournament. Their batsmen couldn't score runs. Their bowlers looked like they just couldn't be bothered. And then from there, they really turned it around, and they're a decent one-day side now. They're a great T20 side even. And I know they came unstuck at the Champions Trophy now at home against um, Pakistan. But still, the way they've gone about their sort of resurgence suggested that they were going to do the same for Test Cricket as well. Joe Root's going to be the captain. There was still more than enough quality in that team. You've got Stokes and Bairstow, very, very good. Moen Ali is coming into his own. You've got Anderson and Broad, who are really fantastic performers time and time again, especially at home. And uh, Alistair Cook was still going to be around for the experience. But then you kind of think, well, actually, let's look past that. And I think going into the series, we didn't kind of look past it. After the Lord's result, we definitely didn't look past those players. But when you look at the link men from there, I think England are in a real spot of bother right now. If you would go through the, just go through the scorecard from that last, that last uh, match at Trent Bridge, it really does put a lot of pressure on players like Gary Balance, um, Ray Jennings' son, uh, Keaton Jennings, look at a guy like Dawson, he's come in to be a decent spinner slash bit of a batsman. And then Mark Wood as well. You know, he was fantastic against the Proteus in the one day, in one day in arena. But test cricket, you need a li- little bit more than just a bit of pace and a bit of a skid on. You need to be able to work the batsman out. You need to be able to bowl to a field. You watch how, how strategically Broad and Anderson go around their business. You don't see any other English bowlers doing that. Moen Ali, I still think, is a great performer. He was kind of underutilized in the second test. Obviously, um, uh, what's his name? Root believed that the conditions weren't going to be too conducive for his success. But still, there are some massive gaps in this team. Now, Gary Balance, he has broken a finger. Okay, so he's out of the third test. Although England are saying he might be available for the fourth. I think they're just trolling us with that. I think he's out. And I'm also thinking that he, sure, his finger got injured by a morning morkel delivery, but I also think it was slammed in a shower door to make this a little bit easier on the selectors. What are they going to do with Jennings? He averages 26 in test cricket. Uh, so there we go. We've got two out of the top three that are looking very, very much out of the picture right now. So Cook has to have a new opening partner. You think Jennings has to get the flick from here. They might persist with him. On what, I'm not entirely sure. I know he made a debut 100 against India. But the guy's first-class record is only, I think he only averages 36 first-class-wise. So, Joe Root, we all know he's this amazing star player. But when your top three is looking shaky, I know Cook did all right in the second innings. He was the sort of lone bat, the lone resistance. He got 42. But that top order, especially with Vern Philander steaming in the way he is with a new ball, that's looking very shaky for England. So, you can't really develop a platform. And if you, if you can't develop a platform, it's asking so much of that middle order. Granted, I think that middle order is pretty strong. But again, is Ben Stokes really going to be the guy you're going to rely on with a bat? Ben Stokes is pretty solid. Now, I do believe he does particularly well against SA. So they're pretty good in the middle. But going into this test, I just thought it was so interesting how there was all these questions around South Africa. What are they going to do? 
How are they going to deal with the top order? Are these players working? Do they have a confidence problem? They've had a very long summer in England. There was so much doubt, so much negative speculation around this team. But now, after two tests, and again, 340 runs, the win there for the, for the Proteas. All those questions are now back in, in England's court. And I, I don't see how they can just answer them this, 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 this far into the series. Of course, this halfway. Next up, there is the test match at the Oval, which will be next Thursday. So this time next week. Now, if you're listening live, of course, the sun next week will be kind of getting into that. And all the momentum is with the Proteas. I know momentum is often an overly cliched thing to talk about in cricket. But when you think about it, the Proteas are all of one test away of winning this series. You wouldn't have said that a week ago. You really wouldn't have. And even though England are also one test away from winning this series, that's not what they're thinking right now. They're thinking about the fact they need to kind of nullify the South African attack, which... It's going to get better, right? So obviously, Olafia came in for Kakisa Rabada, who is, was suspended for the one match. But now he's coming back. So now this Proteus bowling line looks very, very strong. And it looks strong because Chris Morris, I think, really, really stepped up. He was pretty handy with the bat, with the bat. Uh, in the first innings, as they lost their way a little bit. So him and Vern came together. Philando scoring an impressive 50. So he's like a genuine all-rounder now. He's made that number seven spots his own. But the batting seems fine. JP Dumini, as I said at the start of the show, he's been taken out. Quinton Cox in your number four. And with 50% number five, Timber Vavuma, maybe there's some more question marks creeping back in with him. But still, it's a good top six. I know Heino Kuhn is battling, but it's a very, very difficult thing to open the batting in England. Let's not make excuses. Let's look at the bowling because that is, I think, where South Africa have come on in a huge amount in this last test. And England are going to do, have to do a lot to try and kind of counter this. Morkel and Flando, New bowling attack, brilliant. I think they're both fantastic in this last test, and Flander in particular. You can just see he's kind of wearing off that bit of rust that he had off the ankle injury, and the guy is looking just dynamite for that new ball. With Morris being first change and being as good as he has been, he was a bit loose in, in England's first innings, granted, but the guy was solid. And how about that ball to dismiss Root in the second innings? When you're firing in a fast Yorker to bowl one of the best batsmen in test cricket, in world cricket right now, you know you're doing some things right. He was definitely our fastest bowler for the, from the protest perspective. I think one ball got to about 92 miles per hour, which is looking like sort of high 140s. Um, Morris is just adding so much. And then from there, well, I think the burst of bowling line looks pretty good because we're going to have Rabada coming back. And then Maharaj, he is just looking so solid. He got um, six wickets in this test as well. And he isn't just the guy who's going to tie up an end. He's also taking wickets. So this team suddenly looks good again, huh? And with all those naysayers saying, well, you know, this Proteus team in every facet is going down in the toilet, this test team was always going to be much stronger. It was always going to have a bit more to it. And again, you just cannot underestimate how good Fafti Pasi is as a leader. So, you know, there was all those memes going around during the Champions Trophy. There was Faf in an in Indian shirt because, you know, he affected those runouts and uh, he didn't really score very well with the bat. But all of that is forgotten now because he is Captain Fantastic. He is the man to lead this team. And it's also kind of cool for someone like Dean Elgar. You can get back to just being the good batsman that he was. He scored 80 in the second test. I think he's currently, he's a leading test run scorer so far this year. And it's, he is a good player. He's a solid player. Umla back in the runs too. He scored 78 and he also got 87. So that's all looking very good. Five to get a, uh, a half century in the, in the second innings. So. All over to England, huh? 
what a turnaround that was. And Trent Bridge is a place where England have done particularly well in the last few years. I think the last seven matches they were unbeaten. Uh, they've done particularly well there. And that is where uh, Stuart Broad not so long ago rolled Australia out for very, very little. Yeah, exciting, exciting time. Test cricket, there's just nothing like it. There really isn't. But nothing to mention before we get into the golf. We still got to cover some golf. We still got to talk about Roger Federer. Wow, an incredible guy that is. Um, but yeah, for the Women's World Cup yesterday, unfortunately, the Women Pro Tears, uh, not yesterday, sorry, Tuesday, that result was. Unfortunately, the Women's Pro Tears, just a mile too far in this tournament. But nobody expected them to get even to the qualify, to the knockout stages. And they did very well. They got absolutely hammered by England in the first, um, when they met in the, in the prelims, the, the sort of group play. And people knew that England were going to have too much firepower. Batting, though, the, the late women proteas, they were about 30 runs short, admittedly, in that first innings. But a real tenacious fight back with the ball saw the game go right down to the wire. Eventually, the English, English women did win by two wickets. And they were, together with Australia, very much favorites for this tournament. But what an amazing character building, just an all-around great experience for the women, women Proteas from here. This is a great side. There's a lot of talent in here. If they can get a few maybe like stronger hitters in the lineup and be, you know, just learn some discipline basically in the pressure situations. It's very easy to say that because, you know, from an outsider's perspective, there were some silly runouts. There were some times where they went missing with the ball, so to speak. But still, this is a team on the up and up and this is a team that's very, very committed. I mean, it's not nice to see sports people cry. But in a situation as, as like that, you've seen it with the men, now you see it with the women. It means a lot to these sports people when they get to the stage and they're giving their all for the country. So they didn't get to the final, they didn't win, but still a very, very good return there for the women Proteas. Great tournament that is uh, in England, which and I'm guessing Australia or England will win. Australia are playing India, uh, I think it's today. Or it could be yesterday. Anyway, sorry, I can't, I can't follow everything. I mean, as it is, I can't even follow the Tour de France. That wraps up this week. I know last week the, there was the Austrian Grand Prix, not the Austrian Grand Prix, uh, the British Grand Prix. And Mercedes had a 1-2, but I can't follow all of it. There's also the JBA Classic. I, I get emailed all the time about, you know, can't you talk about this? Why don't you talk about that? And as much as I, I would love to, I really would. It's just Who's got the time? Anyway, it is golf. We're getting to the golf next. Royal Birkdale. Oh, cannot wait for this. Royal Birkdale will host the Open Championship for a tenth time. The last occasion this wonderful 128-year-old Lynx was the venue for golf's oldest major was in 2008, when Podrick Harrington claimed the famous claret jug for a second successive year. This is a solid golf course. Very strong course. Uh, doesn't give you anything. You know, until you get to the 17th hole, and they, they always struggle with that 17th hole here because it is a giveaway birdie. And, and to be honest, there hasn't been one all day. Uh, big, tough, strong, fair links course. And usually you don't use the word fair when it comes to links golf courses, but the fairways here are pretty flat, the greens are pretty flat. It's all there in front of you. There's no mystery about this golf course. One contender's rather more familiar with Birkdale than anyone else in the field. Tommy Fleetwood, who grew up within walking distance of the course. Possibly the only or one of the only courses I've been to where every bunker is in play um, on every hole. It, it's a real, real test off the tee. And once you get it off the tee, at times uh, it's not too bad from there, but uh, it's the toughest driving course I think you'll find. Accuracy off the tee will certainly be crucial on a course that seems to attract near universal praise for the quality of its design. You're going to hear a lot about that, the design, the layout, Lynx Golf. That's what it is this week. 
That's what it's been for the last few weeks on the European Tour. There was the Irish Open, which John Rahm won, the talented Spaniard, who up until this point in his pro career has been playing on the on the American Tour. And then this last week was the Scottish Open, which Rafael Cabrera Bello, Bello it's like spelled with an L, but you could pronounce anyway. Um, yeah, so basically, when you come from the European Tour, you have experience on this. Uh, Patrick Harrington, I wasn't going to play that full clip there, but you must follow, uh, subscribe to Golf World on YouTube. They have the most amazing and informative clips, which I took that from. Um, but Patrick Harrington was making a great point that, you know, you need a couple of weeks to kind of just acclimatize how things work on a Lynx golf course. So when they played... At Aaron Hills for the US Open, you heard the word fescue a lot. Now, it's a kind of grass that is obviously synonymous with lynx courses. But when you play a Scottish lynx or a good old English or Irish lynx, the ground's pretty hard. The the term lynx comes from the land that basically links the sea to the, like the farmlands, basically. And it was never used for farming. It was just used for recreational uh things like golf. That's where the whole Lynx course came from. It's a little quick history lesson. But it's very different. So if you're used to playing lush, beautiful, rolling kind of golf courses, the harder turf, it's much harder to kind of play wedge shots off, play, you know, high shots off. Obviously how the balls roll and how the balls bounce and how you gotta play for that kind of stuff. So there's always an advantage, a bit of experience there that uh the kind of players in the European tour might actually have. But it's just, it's golf at its absolute finest. You talk to anybody that knows golf, loves golf, has been around golf, and uh, you give them the opportunity to go play Lynx Golf at one of these amazing open venues, or you have to ask them to go play in America with some tree-lined event, they'll probably take the Lynx course. I know some Americans who've been traveling there this year, and they all say the same. There's nothing like Lynx Golf. And of course, there's absolutely nothing like the Open Championship. Now, I'm a massive, massive fan of the Masters. I think the Masters is a big deal, mostly because it's just, Augusta is just so special. You know, it was made for that tournament. And I, I, some people say it's a bit, it's a bit, uh, plastic. It's a bit contrived, but I'm all for that. You know, they wanted to create something excellent and that's exactly what they do with the Masters. And where it is in the year, you get so excited about it because it's the first major of the year. But then as the year goes on, there's nothing like the Open Championship. In my mind, it is the greatest tournament that is played throughout the year. There's obviously the history. It's the oldest uh, tournament in the whole world. And you can just see, like, you, you watch all the stuff on TV leading up to it, all the hype, all the sort of preview stuff. It is just so special. People... People always flock to this event. There's amazing crowds. The weather is generally kind of awful because, let's be honest, they don't really have a summer in that part of the world. They'll maybe have two or three sunny days, but ultimately, you're going to get wet. You're going to get cold. This week, no, no exception whatsoever. The weather's looking rainy and kind of grim from, well, I think the practice run Wednesday all the way through to Sunday. There'll be spots of sunlight. I don't think it'll be quite as bad as true in last year. Now, I remember when Henrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson were basically, it was just them. The rest of you were making up the numbers. Well, the two of them got the better side of the draw. So they played in much more benign conditions. Whereas a lot of the pre-tournament favorites, they were out there in sideways rain and it, it was just horrible. It was, it wasn't even a battle of attrition. It was just, it was just crap. So this year around, I think there'll be some soft rain, a little bit of wind, nothing too, nothing too horrendous, I hope. So it could be a lot more open. Jordan Spieth made a really good point this week saying that out of all the majors, the, um, the open could actually be the easiest to win because the weather can essentially wipe out half the field depending on the draw. 
Hopefully not going to be the case because there are so many great names in golf right now. As I said before, the US Open, there are so many great form players right now. There's so many great youngsters coming through. And the thing about the Open is that it brings the oldies back into it. So if you've got some experience around Lynx Golf and you keep your nerves in check, then it's still a tournament that you can do well in. Now, as I said, much is going to be mentioned about the layout of this golf course. Um, obviously, with it being a Lynx course, you can have holes that are going to be playing downwind, be very, very short, or they can be pretty long and testy. It is a stroke um, par 70, so there'll be two par 5s, and they come on later in the in the round. But like Phil Mickelson's not taking a driver this week. Uh, Dustin Johnson's already said this week there's no real space to play a driver in a lot of the holes. Tommy Fleetwood, as you heard earlier, who is one of the local favorites there, and a guy who's just really, really red hot right now on, on the golfing world, he says that it's one of the toughest driving holes. You've really got to think about what you're doing because all the bunkers come into play. Now, on Lynx golf courses as well, we get these cross bunkers. So even if you are straight down the middle and you think you're doing well, land in the wrong patch, you'll get a cross bunker, you get pot bunkers in the middle of the fairway, and then you look up, you got bogey written all over that. So much to look out, look out for here. And I kind of move away from giving tips now and giving sort of talking about the favorites because it's always the same people in golf tournaments, really. Now, if you look through the stats, obviously, if you go look, just general betting odds, we'll see Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson. They're going to be at the top. They're in decent form right now. Uh, you know, Dustin Johnson's come quite close in opens in the past. Well, when I say opens in the past, he's been great for the first two rounds, but ever since he won the US Open, he's definitely come on a hell of a lot and a lot more composure and a lot more substance to his game. So obviously he's going to be a massive favorite going into this one. Jordan Spieth as well. He's got a, he's a guy who's got the measure of the conditions. When he played at the Open in, at St. Andrews a few years back, he played the John Deere Classic the week before. His only prep was playing simulator golf. So him and his buddies were playing St. Andrews in a home simulator. The guy came out, he shot five under in the first round. He's just one of those guys, you, got, you need a big, a huge amount of imagination to play Lynx golf and to do well at the Open. And a lot of these guys, that's exactly what they got. Ricky Fowler, well, every single tournament, he is the money man. You gotta look at it. You know, you look at the stats, you look at the strokes gained in various places. The guy makes perfect sense. Like, you just think, it's gonna be his week. This is the week. Everyone thought that Aaron Hills, he led off to round one. And then he came back to the field. He seems to lose a bit of killer instinct on the weekend. But I read a really great article written by Jason Sobel this week, who is, I think he's the ESPN golf guy. I've been following him on Twitter for ages. And he said that even though Ricky got a lot of criticism after Aaron Hills by the fact that he just seemed like he wouldn't want it enough, there wasn't enough intensity by his play, he didn't seem too bothered that he let another one slip, he almost had this air of confidence that it is going to happen. He doesn't know when it's going to happen, but if he keeps doing what he's doing, it's only a matter of time, which shows a kind of great maturity, which I think a lot of players, a lot of people don't give uh, Fowler credit for. So I still think he's the money man this week. Um, as simple as that. Hideki Matsuyama, of course, he's a guy who's done so well in the last two years. He's very consistent in the, in, in the majors. His putting, is, there is a question around that. Same with Adam Scott. These guys hit the ball so well, and they're so particularly well suited to the high-pressure situations, but then the putting falls away. Sergio Garcia, again, it's like, how do you not make this guy one of the favorites? In the past, you'd always say, oh, well, you know, he's played in so many majors, he doesn't ever win them, so that's why I'm not going to bet on him. But he's now a major champion. He's the current Masters champion, so you've got to think he's a great contender. Did pretty well at Birkdale last time around 2008. The guy loves the Open. It's his favorite tournament. He's good at Lynx golf courses. He's good in the wind. He's a guy who can really uh, control his trajectory so well. 
he's obviously going to be a solid bet. Mark Leishman, he came really close in this event not so long ago. Also, just a solid competitor. I think if you're going to make a, a like a money bet, looking for some value, Mark Leishman's going to be there. And then, as a South African, you always want to kind of talk about the South African golfers, like one of them's got a chance. This year, it hasn't been so... And the, the thing that really bugs me is that you look at Charles Swartzel, you look at Louis Ostez, and these are guys that are meant to be doing well or time and time again. They're meant to be winning the world over. They're not, for whatever reason. Some people say it's a motivational thing. Whatever it is, there's not a lot of confidence around these guys, even though Louis Ostez has won the Open before, and he does particularly well at St. Andrews. But there's something about Ernie Els for a place for me, if you are looking to gamble this week. He's had a really great summer in England right now. He's been drinking with his mates, watching cricket. He's been playing some social games. He seems relaxed. He's got very little to prove nowadays, of course, in his career. And all he has to do is just kind of keep it together nerve-wise, because I think his game is it's there, thereabouts. The thing about the Open is that, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You can you can bump and run. You can get away with a few things here or there. Also, a few lucky bounces will do you no harm. So it does open things up quite nicely. I think Ernie's game will be good enough there. Can he give it together? And can he be solid enough on the greens? But I think, for me, the big story, if you're looking for someone who, like, what would be, what would be the best win of the week? You know, it's it's something that I, because I write about sports and I care about it on a very sort of deeper level than just supporting people, I always look for the big stories. And I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists will kind of take the same approach to this. But if... Padraig Harrington had to win this week. It would be it would be quite special. So he won in 2008. In 2008, he won the US PGA Championship as well. So this guy, you'll never hear of, hear from him, but he's actually won really big events. And even a couple of years back, or maybe even more recent, he out of nowhere won a big event on on the PGA Tour. He has a guy who's been tinkering with his swing for years. He's been all over the place. You know, you haven't heard him, and then suddenly he'll appear at an event and be in contention. And then recently he was giving a clinic, and some amateur golfer, I'm guessing by mistake, hit him pretty hard in the elbow with a club. And it was actually, people were thinking this was going to be a career-ending injury for Podrick. Thankfully, he did recover from that. And last week he was looking pretty solid in Scotland. His swing has been referred to as like a kind of like a happy Gilmore kind of swing nowadays because of his injuries, because of his endless tinkering with his swing. He's looking very unconventional, even by his standards at the moment. So he's going to be exciting to watch all the same. And he believes he can do it. He believes his game is good enough to kind of compete here. And of course, he's done it. He has done it. He won the last time around 2008 at Birkdale. He knows what the course is all about. And he'll have the patience. He'll have the understanding of what needs to happen. And when the wind picks up, you got to think the local guys will always have a big advantage because they kind of grow up in this kind of stuff. So that might not have helped you at all as to pick a winner. I still think Ricky Fowler is the money man, but it's the majors. It is the majors. So let's just rather enjoy the spectacle. If you are in South Africa watching this, of course, the, the coverage for TV times is so much more friendly because it's literally just up rather than you know left, far left, latitude-wise in the other hemisphere. Um, but yeah, it's going to be very, very exciting from early morning all the way through to late evening because the sun sets very, very late up there this time of year. So it's going to be an incredible weekend of golf. If you haven't um, entered the Cobra competition, the Cobra Puma golf competition, unfortunately entries to that would have closed by now. But you know, every major have a big competition where you can win something really substantial. And this tournament, no different. We've got Ricky Fowler's third round outfit from Puma to give away if you correct correctly pick his third round total.
or you can say he missed the cut anyway for that competition. If you have entered, all the best for that one. I'm kind of guessing that Meowzers might, might be picking the winner again because it's third round. Lots of people have been picking high 60s with a couple of low 70s there. So that's something to really look forward to. We must finish off with the tennis. I know we're running out of time as always is because when it comes to golf, I, well, I can waffle all day, but I'm massively excited about the Open. The tennis was rather special over the weekend. I know from the women's side of things at Wimbledon, without Serena Williams, uh, it's a bit like when Tiger left um, through injuries for golf. You know, it took some time before people really kind of gravitated or you kind of were excited about the sport. And when Serena doesn't play, obviously the women's isn't a big deal. Her sister uh, Venus did make it through to the final, but she got absolutely hammered by Gabi Muguruza, who is now, well, double Grand Slam champion. She, of course, won the French Open last year as well. So I think she's the only person, how's this for a stat? She's the only person to have beaten both, beaten both Williams sisters in finals of Grand Slams. That's quite a cool thing for the Spaniard. But in the men's draw, Andy Murray, huge hopes, but he, he bowed out. Same with Djokovic, same with Nadal, all these players. There was other kind of notable, um, withdrawals. But while all these things were happening, one guy was just so steady throughout, Roger Federer, who decided to take time off because, well, he knew he wasn't going to win at, um, what do you call it, the uh, the French Open. He knew his days in Clare probably long gone. He, of course, won the Australian Open earlier in the year, beating Nadal. He extended his Grand Slam record to 18 Grand Slam titles. This time round, he took on Marion Cilic in the final. Uh, unfortunately for the Croat, he was injured, or he was carrying an injury. But even if he was at full strength, it was Roger's day. Roger, eighth Wimbledon title now. As the joke is going around that the only person to be just as you know, prolific on grass was Bob Marley. Roger Federer, eight Wimbledon titles. That is just absolutely incredible. It's now 19 Grand Slams in total. The guy's 35 years old. Yeah, that always makes me feel a little bit insignificant seeing as I'm also 35 and I'm definitely not <laughs> still creating or ever going to be creating anything as substantial as Roger Federer. 35 and he believes that his current strategy of managing his time is going to take in place as well. You know, who's to say he can't just keep doing this and win again next year? The guy's got the game for the grass. He's got the composure. And on top of that, he's just such a great guy. Everybody loves Roger Federer and you can see why. Here's what he had to say after winning his eighth title at Wimbledon. And for you, Roger, a great tournament. It's been a great year since you took that six months off. You just seem to be getting better and better. Got to take more time off. I don't know <laughs> what's going on. I'll be gone again for the next six months. I'm not sure if it's going to work out this fantastic every time I come back. But uh, no, I mean, better than holding the trophy and uh, winning today, I guess, it's just being healthy. It uh, um, feels great and it means the world to me. We worked so hard, you know, last year. So be back here and, um, you know, just feeling great and holding the trophy now and the tournament that I played, not dropping a set, it's just it's magical, really. I can't believe it yet. So um, it's just uh, it's too much, really. Now we have to talk records here because you won your first Grand Slam here. Over the years, you've been breaking other champions' records, but now you have your own record, the eighth Wimbledon title, the only man in the history of Wimbledon to ever win it eight times. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's... Uh... Again, it's disbelief, you know, that I can uh, achieve uh, such heights. And, um, you know, I'm, I wasn't sure if I was going to ever be here again in another finals, you know, after after last year and... 
I've had some tough ones here, losing to, losing to Novak in 14 and 15. But, uh, you know, I always believed that I could maybe come back and do it again. And uh, if you believe, you can go, you know, really, really far in your life. And I think I did that, and I'm happy. I kept on believing and dreaming, and uh, here I am today with the eights. It's fantastic. And I know what it means to you also to play on this court. It means the world to you. And I think the fans, uh, they've shown their appreciation for everything that you've done over the years as well. Yeah, it's the, uh, such a special court. Uh, so many legends have uh, marked this court, uh, the women's game, the men's game, doubles, mixed, you name it, all of it together. So uh, to be here today with Marin and celebrating tennis in a way, it's, uh, it's, it's very special. And then, of course, um, from day one to finals day, center court's always packed, and we, the players, appreciate that so, so much. So it's a dream to play here, really, and I hope this wasn't my last match, and I hope I can come back next year and try to defend the title. It's pretty interesting hearing a guy at that age talk about dreaming. Like That's kind of what you always associate with young people. It's like when you start out and you dream about playing Wimbledon or you dream about playing in the Open Championship, but a guy in his mid-30s is still dreaming. And I just I just love the story around Roger Federer. Like, take away the fact that he's hugely successful, such a nice guy, all that kind of stuff. He just has such a great attitude and a great approach towards professional sport. And... You know, you won't, you won't see that, I reckon, in other places. You know, you're not going to see golfers coming back and being able to have such amazing success stories. I mean, look at Tiger Woods, completely done and dusted. I mean, that's just gone now. The greatest. And I believe Roger Federer, even though people say, you know, he's not the greatest on clay, he's got a French Open. So, I mean, that's good enough for me. He is the greatest. He's the greatest we'll ever see in tennis and the way he's conducted himself and the way he's just, he's not done. Like he said, you know, he really hopes he can come back next year and defend his title. Like that's just not some sort of thing to say to get the like the applause, of which he got he got m- much applause for that. But he really believes in this, and he, like he said, he just he believes he can do it, and it's dreaming about making these moments happen. It is so cool. It is so insp- inspirational. And um, like, is he the greatest? Is he the greatest? People were saying on Twitter that maybe he's not. People were also saying on Twitter that he's not even as great as Serena Williams. So he's not even the greatest tennis player, um, men or women. That's another debate maybe we can have another time. We are kind of out of time for this week. We've got obviously the big weekend of, of sport ahead. So it's the Open Championship. Get all amongst that. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'll be giving you updates around that. And uh, there's obviously rugby, the Super Rugby. Football was still a bit, on, a bit of a break. There might be some transfer news, but ugh, it's no biggie. People are just basically masquerading. All the big clubs are masquerading around, um, you know, countries who are throwing lots of money around at them at the moment. That's pretty much it for the sports. Catch me every single week here, cliffcentral.com on the Gareth Cliff Morning Show. So that's where I do my sport every single day. This is, of course, just the one weekly show if you are new to it. 6.30 to 7 in that bracket there, I'll bring you all the latest daily updates of what's happening in the world of sport on the Gareth Cliff Show right here on cliffcentral.com. Otherwise, the bounce.co.za, catch up all the latest writings that I do there. Otherwise, on Twitter, at followthebounce, Instagram, The Bounce, and then on YouTube, go on find The Bounce there as well. As I said, there's a new video up. I played East London Golf Course last week, and it was really, really amazing. And I've got some really cool drone footage coming your way with uh, my time in the Trans Sky, which was absolutely magical. Thanks for joining me this week. Bit of a shortened show. I've got to get out of here. Um, yeah, I'm just pretty excited about watching the Open. I'm going to be completely, uh, completely upfront with you. 
all of us, everything is about watching the Open right now and what an amazing tournament it's going to be. Catch you next week. This is CliffCentral.com.